0: Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at John chapter 8. i invite you to turn there in your Bibles uh, to verse 12, and I'm going to read part of this passage for us, and then we'll take a look at the rest of it as we work our way through uh, this passage in John. John chapter 8, beginning at verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. And Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I come from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are right, because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law it is written that the testimony of two men is valid. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. And then they asked him, Where is your Father? You do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him, because his time had not yet come. Once more Jesus said to them, I am going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, Will he kill himself? Is that why he says, Where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. Who are you, they asked. Just what I have been claiming all along, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is reliable, and what I have heard from him I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be, and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these powerful stories of Jesus' life and ministry that have been recorded for our benefit. Lord, help us to hear what they are saying to us today. Help us to hear what you want to communicate to us as we think about our lives and the opportunities that we have. And may we put our trust fully in your Son as our Savior and Lord. Amen. The passage that we're going to look at this morning is one that I have used many times in evangelism, perhaps more than any other text. And I would say over the years, as I have shared Christ with individuals going all the way back to the campus ministry that we were involved in, probably the question I've been asked more than any other is the question, why do Christians say that Jesus is the only way to God? I mean, there are people who will look at that and they'll say, you know, I mean, isn't it just one way of many ways? Or, you know, isn't that kind of exclusive to say that Christianity is the only way? How do you answer that? Well, the way that I answer that is by saying that I didn't say that. Jesus did. It is because of what Jesus Christ has said about himself. That's why Christians say that Jesus is the only way to the Father. Jesus on many different occasions affirmed that, claiming to be the only way to God, and either that statement is true or it is false. And if Jesus is indeed the one that he claims to be, if he is indeed God, doesn't he have the right to demand our allegiance and to tell us how it is that we can come into a relationship with his Father? The crux of the matter is this. It is found in verse 24 of the passage that I read for you. Jesus said in verse 24 that I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. You see, there are two ways that a person can die, and it all hinges on what we believe about Jesus Christ we can either die in the Lord or we can die in our sins. The Bible says blessed are those who die in the Lord. They will not participate in the second death. They will experience that resurrection to eternal life. But those who die in their sins will be lost forever. They will spend eternity separated from God in hell in eternal punishment. Those are the two alternatives, and it all depends upon what we believe about Jesus Christ. As pastors, we see the difference every time we officiate at a funeral. I have been to funerals that are celebrations of a person's life. Because that person had a great faith in Jesus Christ or lived in a way that honored Him, it was wonderful to hear the testimonies of how that person's life impacted others or to think of how they lived in a way wanting to honor God in all that they did. And even though there is sorrow and loss by those who grieve over this person who has passed away, there's joy because we know that they are now in the presence of Christ in a far better place. And their battle is done. And one day we who know Christ will see them again. And so there's hope and there's joy even in the midst of sorrow. But I have also been to services that were lifeless and dark because there was no hope. There was no assurance that that person had any kind of faith at all in Jesus Christ. And what words of comfort can you give at that time? There is very little that you can give. You see, what we believe about Jesus Christ is terribly important. Thomas Paine was one of the great intellectuals among the founders of our country. But he was also an infamous unbeliever. And he was a man who led many away from the scriptures and belief in God. On the day Thomas Paine died, these were his final words. He said, I would give worlds if I had them, that the Age of Reason had not been published. O Lord, help me. Christ, help me. O God, what have I done to suffer so much? But there is no God. But if there should be, what will become of me hereafter? Stay with me. For God's sake, send even a child to stay with me, for it is hell to be alone. If ever the devil had an agent, I have been that one. He died tortured in his own soul because of the way that he had lived his life. Contrast that with the words of Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer and evangelical poet. He wrote some of our great hymns like, O God, our help in ages past, or the Christmas carol, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. On the day that he passed away, he said, It is a great mercy that I have no manner of fear or dread of death. I could, if God please, lay back my head and die without terror this very afternoon. And with joy, Isaac Watts passed into the presence of Jesus Christ. What a tremendous difference it makes to have faith in Jesus Christ. Again, what we believe about Jesus is of the utmost importance. Jesus said, Unless you believe that I am the one that I claim to be, you will die in your sins. So, who does Jesus claim to be? Well, we're going to take a look at that this morning in a little bit of a summary fashion. See, in the Gospel of John, there are seven I am statements that Jesus made about himself that end with a metaphor, a figure of speech. We've looked at a couple of these already in our study of John, but it started in John 6:35 when Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And what he meant by that is, I am the one who truly satisfies. I'm the one who truly gives you that strength for your life, your daily bread, for both body and soul. In John 8.12, he said, I am the light of the world. He's the one who guides us, who leads us, who can show us the way to the Father and show us how to live in this life. In John 10.7, he will say, I am the gate or I am the door to heaven. And he's what we find when we open that door. In John 10.11, he'll say, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. In John 11:25 he says I'm the resurrection and the life and whoever believes in me even if he dies yet shall he live. In John 14:6 he said I'm the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the father but through me. And in John 15:1 he will say I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. And everyone who abides in me will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, these are incredible claims that Jesus made about himself. I mean, just think about those statements that he is making in the presence of other people there about who he really is. But there's more. In this very passage, Jesus also claimed to be without sin. In chapter 8, verse 46, Jesus is speaking with the religious leaders. And He asks them, in verse 46, Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? And if I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He challenged His witnesses to find anything that they could that was sin in His life, and they could not do that. Now, who would dare to make such a claim? I mean... No ordinary person is going to make that kind of claim. Certainly, as you think about today in the media, you know no politician is going to want to make that claim. I mean, if you're running for an office today, they're going to try and find some dirt that they can, and they usually can find something, because we're all sinners, and we know that. In the passage just before this one, in the first part of chapter 8, there is a story about the woman who was caught in adultery. And she is brought before Jesus, and the crowd wants to stone her. And what does Jesus say in that context to this angry mob that has come that wants to put this woman to death? He said in verse 7, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And they all left, one by one. He challenged them, Are any of you without sin? Can you throw that first stone? Not a one. And yet he can say of himself, Can any of you find anything wrong in me? The only thing that they could ever accuse him of was blasphemy, that he claimed to be God, and they just could not comprehend that or believe that. We are all sinners. And we know it in our heart and we stand in need of his grace. But thirdly, Jesus claimed directly to be God. There are three other I am statements in this chapter. And I find it very interesting to look at that. And that's why I've used this passage so often in evangelism. Because of the statements that Jesus made about himself. We looked at the first one in verse 24 when Jesus said unless you believe that I am you will die in your sins now I want to point out like in the New International Version the words that I claim to be are in brackets or in parentheses that's because they're not there in the Greek they are put there to help us understand a little bit more what he's saying here that unless you believe that I am the one I claim to be that's to try and help us get the sense of it But really, what he is saying is, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Again, in John 8, verse 28, same thing. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Period. And Jesus was saying there, you know, what's he talking about? When I am lifted up, he's talking about his death, when he is going to be lifted up on the cross and then later in His resurrection and ascension. And you will know that I am. And again, it will be in chapter 8, verse 58, when they are talking about Abraham, and they're arguing that they are children of Abraham, and He says, no, you're not. In chapter 8, verse 58, He says, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. I am. He is claiming pre-existence. He's claiming that he has been here from all of eternity. These are powerful claims, and every Jew that was present there knew what he meant. These are claims to deity. Jesus was taking the very name of God For example, in Exodus 3.14, God had said to Moses, when Moses asked him, Lord, who should I say has sent me? God said, I am who I am. I'm that eternally existing one. I'm the one who has always been here. I'm the all-sufficient one who can meet your needs. And here, Jesus is coming along and He is saying, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. You know how powerful that would be? I mean, that's either totally audacious, which some of them believe, or it is authentic and true. We need to bow before Him and listen to what He has said. The same thing occurs at the end of the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 43:11, for example, God said, I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. He said, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days I am He. When the Septuagint was translated, where they took the Hebrew Old Testament and translated it into Greek, it uses the very same words that Jesus used here in declaring that He is the I Am. He picked up on what the book of Isaiah was saying, what God was saying about Himself, And he applied those words to himself. And that is why in verse 59 it says, At this they picked up stones to stone him. It was blasphemy. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. His time had not yet come. Jesus was making a very real and direct claim to be God. What do we do with those claims? How do we respond to that? Do they inspire faith? Do they challenge us to believe in him? Certainly they do. In American history, there was a man named Lou Wallace, and a number of you are familiar with this story. But he was quite an interesting character. He lived in the Civil War era and then into the late 1800s. He served as a military general. He was a major general. Uh, in the Civil War on the Union side. He was also a statesman. He served in the Indiana State uh, Senate. He was also a governor. He was appointed by Hayes, President Hayes, as governor of the New Mexico Territory in Arizona. He was an ambassador to Turkey, and he was also an author. I don't know how he found time to write with all that he was doing in his life. He was quite an incredible man. But for most of his life, he lived it as an unbeliever. In fact, he had a good friend who was an agnostic, Robert Ingersoll. He was one of his closest friends, and Robert Ingersoll suggested to Lou Wallace that he write a book to disprove Christianity. He said, see here, Wallace, you are a learned man and a thinker. Why don't you gather material and write a book to prove the falsity concerning Jesus Christ, that no such man has ever lived, much less... And the author of the teachings found in the New Testament. Such a book would make you famous. It would be a masterpiece, a way of putting an end to the foolishness about the so-called Christ. And he thought about it, and he was intrigued by the possibility of writing such a book. So he went back to his home in Indianapolis. He told his wife what he intended to do. Now she was a member of the Methodist church, and she did not like his plan. And she began to pray Well, he spent several years doing the research and study for his book. And he came to the point where he had nearly written four chapters when it became clear to him that Jesus Christ was just as real a personality as Socrates or Plato or Caesar. The conviction became a certainty. I knew that Jesus Christ had lived because of the facts connected with the period in which he lived. And he said, I was in an uncomfortable position. I'd begun to write a book to prove that Jesus Christ had never lived on the earth, and now I was face to face with the fact that he was just as historic a person as Julius Caesar or Mark Antony or Virgil or Dante or a host of other men who lived in ancient times. And I asked myself candidly, if he was a real person, and there was no doubt about that, was he not then also the Son of God, and the Savior of the world. And gradually the consciousness grew that Jesus Christ was both. He was a real person, and He was the one that He claimed to be. And I fell on my knees, and I prayed for the first time in my life. And I asked God to reveal Himself to me, to forgive my sins, and help me become a follower of Christ. Toward morning the light broke in my soul, And I went into my bedroom, I woke my wife, and I told her that I had received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. She was overjoyed. And she said, Lou, I have prayed for this ever since you told me of your purpose to write this book, that you would find him while you wrote it. Well, those of you who know the story know that Lou Wallace went on to write a book, a very famous book. It was called ben Hur*. And in that book, he shares the struggles and the growing faith of one who comes to know Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible has recorded these stories for us about Jesus so that we might come to believe in him too. That's what John said. That's the whole purpose he wrote these, recorded these miracles and the teachings of Jesus so that we might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we would have life in his name. What does it mean, then, to believe in Jesus? Well, that's another good question that we're going to look at. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? You can go to the next slide. One of the things that we see in Scripture is that belief is not mental assent. Belief is not just knowing some things about Jesus. A lot of people do that. You could talk to a lot of people in our country today and they would say that they believe in Jesus or that they know some things about them, but it's not a true biblical faith. What does it mean to believe in Jesus according to the scriptures? Well, in this very chapter we have several words that are descriptive of what true faith is. For example, in John eight twelve, Jesus said that whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. So believing in Jesus has to do with following Jesus. It means that we choose to live the way that He lived or we choose to follow what He has said in our life. It's not just knowing something in our head, but it shows in the way that we live again. In John 8.31, He said, If you hold to My teaching, you are really My disciples. He challenged those who had put their faith in Him to say, Now, here's what it means. You need to hold to what I say. It's a wholehearted commitment, not a casual observance. And then he challenged them in verse 42. He said, if God were truly your Father, you would love me. A mark of a disciple is our love for God as well as our love for one another. But Jesus is saying, if you truly know me, if you truly believe in me, you will love me. It's the first and greatest commandment. And then finally in verse 51, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. To keep his word is to put it into practice. It's to live by it every day. And so we see here that belief is not just, again, knowing some information about Jesus, but it's a way in which we live. The proof of our faith is shown in how we live our life. Do we believe in His Word? Do we put it into practice in our life? Are we people who love it, delight in the Word, study the Scriptures, see what God's will is for our life, and then live that out? You see, if we truly love God, then we're going to worship Him. We're going to come to church. We're going to enjoy time with believers in the body of Christ so that we might grow in our relationship with Him. If we love Jesus, we're going to follow His teaching and do what He asks. And that relates to sharing our faith or fellowship with other believers or using our gifts in ministry to serve or being good stewards of the resources that He's given us or having a concern for the poor, the needy, concerned about the lost. All of those things will flow from the life of a person who truly believes in Jesus Christ and who has made Him lord of their life and what we find when we begin to grow in that relationship is that his commandments aren't a burden they are a joy it is a joy to follow and honor Jesus Christ you know I've always thought if someone really believes in Jesus you shouldn't have to ask the question are they a Christian you should be able to see it in the way that they live And that's what Jesus was getting at in this third question that I want to raise this morning in the text. It's the last one that we'll look at today. But it's the question, who are Abraham's children? Because as Jesus began to share these things, the Jews that were listening to him protested. You know, he's talking about children of God, children of the devil, children of the world, children who belong to the kingdom. He's talking about things in which they began to protest. And in verse 33, they answered him and they said, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say we shall be set free? And Jesus replied and he said, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever so if the son sets you free you will be free indeed I know you are Abraham's descendants he's saying I know that physically you have come from the line of Abraham as a people I know that yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for me or no room for my word and I am telling you what I've seen in the father's presence and you do what you have heard from your father Abraham is our father they answered and he said if you were Abraham's children then you would do the things Abraham did but as it is you are determined to kill me a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God Abraham did not do such things you are doing the things your own father does they protested we are not illegitimate children the only father we have is God himself and Jesus said to them if God were your father you would love me For I came from God, and now I'm here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies." Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. It's pretty strong language, isn't it? It's pretty blunt as he puts it out there. And he's talking about their relationship with the Father. They protested. We're Abraham's children. We're in. I mean, we have the covenant. We have the law. We have the promises. All of that. Aren't we in the kingdom? And Jesus challenged their thinking. Who are the children of Abraham? Is it those born by lineal descent? No. Not at all, Jesus says. It is those who are born by faith who are Abraham's children. The Apostle Paul took up this same argument in Galatians 3, and he said this, Galatians 3, 6 and 7, he said, Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand, then, that those who believe are children of Abraham. It's those who have the same faith that he did. And Jesus rebuked them. You see, he's saying we are either a child of God because of our faith in Jesus or we are a child of the devil because of our rejection of Jesus. There's no middle ground here. Either we believe or we don't. Either we have come to trust in Christ as our Savior or we're thinking we're pretty good ourselves and we can make it on our own. There's no middle ground. That's why the question needs to be asked of everyone who's child are you? Whose child are you, and where have you come to put your trust? What we believe about Jesus Christ, again, is extremely important. It will determine our final destiny. So do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the one that He claimed to be? And have you placed your trust in Him as your Savior and Lord? When I think about my responsibility and my charge here as a pastor, you know, my desire is to see everyone who's a part of our church in heaven one day. That we will all be there to gather and rejoice in what God did. But you know what? My desire is greater than that too. It's to see the people of this community. It's to see the people that we come in contact with each and every day also come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why God's left us here, to be that kind of witness for Him, to live in such a way, to take steps of faith, to invite others to come and place their trust in Him. It's why we need to live for Him in a way that honors and pleases God. And so I want to challenge you this morning, as you think about this year coming up, to take the next step in your relationship with Christ, whatever that may be. I really thought Pastor Ron's message last week was very good as he challenged us to consider small groups. I want to just affirm that. I want to affirm how life-changing those can be. For example, we've had some couples that have been in that marriage dynamic class, and I've heard things that they've been saying. It's a lot of work, but it has really been a blessing in their marriage. And there are people that are learning to love again, people that are growing in their relationship, working through some things, people that had good marriages but wanted them to be better. And it's really neat to hear those stories of what people are saying. I've talked to people that have gone through the Crown Ministry class and said, you know what, that really helped us to get our finances in order. We were struggling and we weren't being obedient to what God asked in that area. And through that class, we learned some biblical principles that helped us to get our budget in order, get our life in order. And it's amazing what happens. The freedom that comes when we begin to live according to the Scriptures. And you are able to give as God desires. And what a joy that is. I think two of people that are going through the Soul Purpose Discipleship Group. If you want to grow in your relationship with Christ, make the time to do that begin to build in your life those spiritual disciplines that have helped God's people all through the centuries understanding how to study the scripture, the word and be in prayer and growing in your relationship with Christ walking in obedience dealing with those things that hinder us in our relationship with him and you will find your life transformed by the power of Christ it happens over and over again I can't give you any shortcuts to spiritual faith But I can tell you, if you're willing to take the time to work at those disciplines and stay at it, your relationship with Christ will grow. These things are for your benefit, for our benefit as a church, that we might grow in our relationship with Him. There are opportunities to see real change in each of our lives. So whatever it may be for you, would you take that next step this year? Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for this powerful passage about who Jesus really is. We see so clearly that he is Lord and God. He's worthy of our greatest devotion. He's worthy of our praise and adoration. And Lord, one day we're going to stand before you and you are going to ask us to give an account for the way we have lived our life. Father, I pray that in that day we would be able to stand in your presence knowing that we had given you our very best knowing, as Jim Elliot once said, that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Lord, help us to be willing to lay aside the things of this earth for the things of heaven and to rejoice and honor you in all that we do. Amen.